0: In the year 1888, Alfred Nobel was a Swedish chemist who had made a fortune inventing and producing dynamite. I think we have a picture of Alfred Nobel this morning, very sophisticated man. Well, around that same time period, Alfred Nobel lost his brother. His brother passed away. And history records that Alfred opened up a French newspaper to read his brother's obituary. Only what he read was not his brother's obituary. You see the editor had confused which brother had died. And so when Alfred opened up the newspaper, he did not see his brother's obituary He saw his own obituary. The headline read, The Merchant of Death is Dead. You see, in that day, Alfred Nobel was known as someone who had became rich by helping other people kill one another. That was his reputation. That was his legacy. In that moment when Alfred opened up the newspaper, it was a life-changing moment for him. And he decided from that point on, he was going to give his life to something different. He was going to do his best in the time he had left to change his reputation and change his legacy. And he decided from that point he was going to give his life, the rest of his life towards helping other people. And eight years later, when Alfred Nobel did actually pass away, he left more than $9 million to be used to fund awards to honor people who were benefiting humanity. We know that award as the Nobel Prize. You see, Alfred had a very unique opportunity He had an opportunity while he was still alive to evaluate what he was giving his life to. And when he evaluated it, he didn't like it very much. And he decided to make a change. Now you may have heard Alfred's story before, maybe you haven't. But what I want us to think about as we begin this morning is this. What was it that caused Alfred Nobel... To go from being someone living a selfish life to someone living a generous life. Well, if you boil it all down, the simple answer is this. His values changed. You see, values drive our decisions and decisions shape our lives. We say that all the time at Hope, especially in our membership class. We tell people, listen, values drive our decisions, and decisions ultimately shape our lives. It was true for Alfred Nobel, it's true for you, and it's true for me. That's why at Hope, we take very serious the things that we value. Here at Hope, we have four core values that shape our decisions and ultimately shape our church. And one of those values that I love so much is the value of generous living. Here's the way we unpack that phrase. We live life ready to make a difference in the lives of others. I want us to read that out loud this morning off the screen on three. One, two, three. We live life ready to make a difference in the lives of others. And the basis of that value is this, that everything that's been given to us, everything that's been entrusted to us, ultimately doesn't belong to us. It belongs to God. And we are simply to steward what he's given to us in a way that honors him. We value generous living. And today we are kicking off a four-part teaching series that is directly connected to our value of generous living. We're kicking off a series today called, You'll Be Glad You Did. And for the month of July, here's what we're going to wrestle with. We're going to wrestle with how you and I are leveraging our time, our skills, and our resources in such a way that honors God. I was reading on Twitter this week and I came across a tweet by a man named Louis Giglio. A lot of you may know Louis. He's a pretty famous pastor in 2013. And he he shared a tweet that I think captures the essence of what we wanna wrestle with during the month of July. Here's, Here's the statement he made. Generosity is not something God wants from you as much as something he wants for you. I believe God desires for us to be a generous people because he knows our lives most reflect his life when we are giving and sharing and leveraging our life for what matters most. So here's the big question During the month of July that we're going to talk about, we're going to look at this question every week. Here's the question. How am I leveraging my time, skills, and resources for maximum kingdom impact? I can't answer that question for you. I can answer it for me. But there are three big areas in that question. The first one is time. We've all been entrusted with a limited amount of hours, days, weeks, months, and years. And we are to spend that time wisely. The second big area, skills. We've all been grace gifted by God. With skills and abilities that we're to utilize to honor God and to bless other people. The third area resources. We've all been entrusted with finances and with possessions, and we are to steward those things in a way that brings glory and honor to Jesus. That's the big question this month in our series, You'll Be Glad. You did. If you have a Bible this morning, would you turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 4. In just a moment, we're going to look at a pretty well-known passage of Scripture. We're going to unpack three verses this morning from 2 Timothy chapter 4. But before we read these verses, I want us all to get in a frame of mind that is in line with the context. I want you to imagine for a moment... That somehow, way, you are informed that your life, your time here on earth is about to end. That very soon, you're going to leave this earth, step out of time, and enter into eternity. And I want you to imagine for a moment that you're given one piece of paper. And you're told you can write whatever you want and send it to whoever you want. Who would you write to? You got one piece of paper. You can express your heart in some capacity to one person. Who who would you write to? But also, what would you write about? Well, if you're anything like me, I would probably write to my spouse, my children, my close friends and family. You would probably do the same thing. And I'd probably write about the way I feel about them. I'd write maybe some reflections on my life. Maybe some words of wisdom about the future. Well, that scenario is exactly what the Apostle Paul is living in here in 2 Timothy chapter 4. You see, he's aware that his time on earth is coming to an end. And he's writing his final letter. And what he chooses to do is write to his disciple named Timothy. Some, some principles about life, some principles about kingdom that he wants to make sure Timothy understands. Now, in the verses leading up to what we're about to read, Paul has been talking to Timothy about ministry. He's telling him, listen, you continue to be faithful to the word. You preach the word even when it's difficult. Timothy, stay faithful to the ministry God has called you to. And then he comes to 2 Timothy chapter 4, Verses 6, 7, and 8. Let's read this together. Paul says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. He says, I have fought the good fight. I've finished the course. I've kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul is at the very end of his life. And he's looking back on the service and the giving and the sacrifices he's made for the sake of the kingdom of God. And here's what he's concluding. He's saying, I'm glad I did. I'm glad I did. And the way I want us to unpack this text today is I want to share with you three components of a life well lived What are the pieces that need to be a part of our life now so that we can look back one day and say, I'm glad I did. That was a life well lived for the glory of God. And there's a component found in each one of these verses and here's the first one. Component number one, daily surrender. Daily surrender. The word surrender is not a popular word. It doesn't matter if you're talking about a battle between countries or if you're talking about family members playing a board game. We don't like the idea of surrender. But in the context of a relationship with God, this action and attitude of surrender is extremely significant. You see, when we come into a relationship with God, we are forgiven of all sin, past, present, and future. We are given victory in Christ Jesus that no one and no thing can ever take away. But as long as we're on the earth, we still have to do battle with our flesh. The sinful nature that we've not yet been separated from so for the believer, it is very significant that on a daily basis, we are denying ourselves and our wishes, our desires, and our plans. And we are surrendering to God's will, God's desires, and God's plan. The word surrender simply means to give up control of something or to give something up another. Oswald Chambers said this, there is only one thing God wants of us and that is our unconditional surrender. Look at what Paul says here in verse six and listen for the tone of, of surrender that's in what he writes. He says, for I am already being poured out. I'm being spilled out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. This verse contains two metaphors that Paul gives Timothy to really articulate his view of life and death. The first metaphor he uses is a drink offering. This is a reference to the Old Testament sacrificial system that's really spelled out in the book of Numbers. When, an, when a sacrificial offering was going to be lifted up to God, they first sacrificed the animal. Then there was a grain sacrifice. And lastly, there was a drink offering that was poured out over the altar. You see, Paul was aware that the end of his life was close. And he says, one of the ways I view my life on earth is as a sacrificial offering that is being surrendered and lifted up to God. He talked about this in another one of his letters in the book of Philippians chapter 2. He said this, he said, I will rejoice even if I lose my life, pouring it out like a liquid offering to God, just like your faithful service is an offering to God. And I want all of you to share that joy. It's amazing to me what Paul chooses to say, even in the most difficult of circumstances. He doesn't say, Like probably a lot of us would say, well, I'm alone. I'm humiliated. I'm miserable. I'm in prison. This is not fun at all. He doesn't go there. He, he in essence, communicates, listen, my whole life, it's his. And he can do with it whatever he chooses because I am surrendered to him. The second metaphor that he gives is a departure. And this phrase kind of has a couple of pictures with it. One picture is of a ship that is lifting anchor and untying ropes and departing into the sea. Another picture of this phrase is the breaking up of a camp by a group of military soldiers. In essence, Paul is saying, I'm departing to my eternal home, and being released from my earthly mission. And I'm sure if you or I received um, a letter like Timothy was receiving, there'd be a lot of emotion. I'm sure when Timothy read this letter from his mentor of over 10 years, the Apostle Paul, he was reading it through tears. But what I think is so significant about verse 6 for us this morning is that this idea of daily surrender was not something Paul embraced when he came to the end of his life and got his death sentence. This was something that he embraced when he became a Jesus follower. And he understood what it meant to sacrifice and surrender his life for the glory of God. Listen to what he said earlier in Romans chapter 12 verse 1. He said, therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. You see, Paul had grown to a place in his walk with Jesus that surrender without conditions was a daily practice. I want you to think about how this this reality of daily surrender lays over your life. You see, Paul lived with a heart that was yielded and available to God. At any moment, he was ready to sacrifice. If God said serve, he served. If God said give, he gave. If God said go, he went. That was the heart attitude the Apostle Paul carried during all of his Christian life. I want to read a statement for you that I think captures the heart of the Apostle Paul. But this statement landed on me this week like a ton of bricks. John Ortberg said this, when my only task is to be available, it is impossible to be interrupted. I believe this morning there's something about surrender that God wants to teach us. Because I don't know about for you, but at least for me, I usually don't live my life ready and available. I usually live my life guarded and skeptical. I struggle with this idea of living yielded and ready to sacrifice before my heavenly father. And I'm sure for a lot of us, you would say, hey, I try my best, I'm doing my best. Yet all the while, God is ready and waiting to move in our lives. If we will approach him with an attitude of surrender, But for a lot of people, this concept of daily surrender is not even on our radar. So I want to give you four statements this morning very quickly that I believe are statements of surrender. These are statements that I say in my heart every day. And they've really helped me in my relationship with God get in a right mindset and heart attitude as I approach the day and serving God in whatever capacity that's happening. Here's statement number one. God. I need you. A surrendered heart approaches God in a spirit of desperation to say, God, today more than I need anything else, Lord, I need you. You see, pride and dependence cannot coexist. A prideful heart says, I'm okay. I'm sufficient. But let me tell you what a surrendered heart said God, more than I even realize it, I need you. That's a statement of surrender. Here's a second statement of surrender God, you don't need me. That'll bless you. (laughs) To approach God on a daily basis and say, Lord, as much as I hate to say it, You are holy and righteous and good and eternal and all-powerful all by yourself. And whether you have me in the scenario or not, you're going to accomplish your mission. Now, it's awesome to know he's invited us to be a part of it. But a statement of surrender that I believe must be on our heart, if we're going to get our head around what it looks like to live a life that honors him, is for us to say on a daily basis, God, you don't need me. Here's a third statement of surrender. God, I am not you. For us to say, I'm not the king, I'm not in control, I'm not the Lord, I'm not the boss, I'm not the one who sees the big picture. God, I am not you. And forgive me for the moments when I think I am. A fourth statement. God, I choose to follow you. And over the course of my relationship with God, I've just come to a place where on a daily basis, either when I'm driving to work or spending time with God, I just need to say out loud to get my heart and mind in an attitude of surrender. God, I need you. You don't need me. I'm not you. But today, Lord, I choose to follow you with my whole heart. What would change about your life and if you approached it with an attitude of daily surrender. I believe there's nothing more significant that you and I do on a daily basis than to deny ourselves and surrender our lives to the purposes of God. Roy Hessian made this statement. I read it the other day and really think it speaks to the heart of what we're talking about. He said, the Lord Jesus cannot live in us fully and reveal himself through us until the proud self within us is broken. This simply means that the hard, unyielding self, which justifies itself, wants its own way, stands for its rights, and seeks its own glory, at last bows its head to God's will, admits its wrong. Gives up its own way to Jesus. Surrenders its own right and discards its own glory. That Jesus might have all and be all. We can stiffen our necks and refuse to repent. Or we can bow the head and say, yes Lord. Brokenness in daily experience. Is simply the response of humility to the conviction of God. And inasmuch as this conviction is continuous, we shall need to be broken continually. I want to challenge you this morning. If we're going to be a generation that looks back on a life well lived, we must apply this practice of daily surrender to the purposes of God. It was the pattern of Jesus' life. It was the pattern of Paul's life. And it must be the pattern of our life if we're going to be used and experienced the way he desires. And let me say this before we move to the second component. What kind of arrogance must we have in our heart to wake up on a daily basis and enter into the day God gave us, living the life God gave us, and not even take a moment to acknowledge our dependence on him. I believe the closer we get to Jesus, the more carnal we realize that we really are. And we finally come to a place, like I know the Apostle Paul did, where he says, Jesus, you are great at everything, and I am terrible at everything. This attitude of daily surrender. Here's the second component that we find in this text. A legacy of faith. Not only does he talk about daily surrender, but he talks about a legacy of faith. In verse seven, he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In this verse, Paul reveals three descriptions for Timothy about his ministry. And each one of these words are actions that took place in the past that have ongoing results in the present and moving forward. The first description he gives is of a fight. He says, I have fought the good fight. Both the word fought and fight have a root word in which we get our word agony or agonizing. These words were often referenced with athletic competitions, specifically in this context, the Greek Olympic Games. They always describe a point in time where great energy and effort is being given. And I would just imagine as Paul wrote about this fight, in his mind he was thinking about all the fights he had faced for the sake of the gospel. He must have thought about the battle with the enemy, the battle with the Judaizers and the persecutors of the church, his battle with people who didn't understand the mission of Jesus, his battle with his own flesh. Nevertheless, here's what he says about the fight. He says, it was the good fight. He says, it was a good agony. (laughs) It was a good effort. It was good energy. It was being given to the most valuable fight that I could possibly be a part of. That was his first description of his ministry, a fight. The second description is a race. He says, I have finished the course. Paul used this illustration of a race and a runner all throughout his writing. And here he's referencing the fact that he fully accomplished the ministry God had called him to. He says, just as when a runner runs, he is set on the finish line. I have lived my life focused on the goal. I've had one consuming passion the proclamation of the gospel. He says it was a fight, it's a race. The third description, he says, keeping the faith. He says, I have kept the faith. Meaning, there was never a time throughout this that he was questioning or rebelling against God. He wasn't shaking his fist up to heaven and saying, God, what are you doing? He says, throughout my ministry, I have believed what God told me to write down in Philippians 1 verse six. That he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. He talks about the fight of faith. He talks about the race. He talks about keeping the faith. What a legacy. To be able to look back over his life, and that's the way that he refers to how he served Jesus. What a legacy. Matthew Henry said, it ought to be the business of every day to prepare for our last day. And I want us to think for just a moment, what it must have been like for Timothy to talk about Paul to the next generation. What do you say about this guy? He was obsessed with Jesus and his mission. He fought the good fight, he finished the course, he kept the faith, he established a legacy of faith. Let me ask you something really personal. How is the next generation going to talk about you? I mean, think about your kids or your friends. You're, you've entered into eternity and somebody's talking about you to some teenagers or to some young adults. What would they say? What do they think about when they think about you? What's your legacy? Well, um, he worked a lot. Um, Well, she had a really nice house. Oh, she loved clothes. (laughs) He was so passionate about football. And none of those things are bad. But that's not what you want brought up in a legacy conversation. What are you giving your life to? What is your legacy on earth? You see, when we talk about time, skills, and resources, people get really protective. But here's what I want us to see. There's a much bigger picture to this thing. There is a kingdom of God opportunity before us. And we have a chance in this generation, today, this week, this month, this year, to leverage our time, our skills, and our resources for maximum impact in the kingdom. And to begin the process of laying down a legacy so that when people think about our investment into the church, they think about people who fought the good fight and finished the course and kept the faith. That's what I want people to think about when they think about hope in this generation. Are you establishing a legacy? Of faith. Component number one, daily surrender. Component number two, a legacy of faith. Component number three, anticipation of Christ's return. Anticipation of Christ's return. To anticipate something means... You expect it to happen and you prepare yourself for it. I believe in verse eight, Paul talks about what he's been anticipating his entire ministry. He says this in verse eight. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul's making a comparison. You see, in the Greek Olympic Games, the award was a wreath. It was a crown that was put on people's heads. And it was made of ivy, leaves, and flowers. So when he brought up this idea of crown, that's what they thought about. But he says, what's awaiting me is not a crown made of leaves. It's a crown of righteousness that will be graciously given to me by Jesus himself. Paul's saying in verse eight, I'm anticipating that day. I'm thinking about that day every day. For us, I think there are two emotions that should stir up in our hearts when we think about that day. One is encouragement. I hope it encourages you to know that what you're living in right now is not eternal. That there's a day coming when God is gonna take care of us and take us to a place where there's no more pain, no more sickness, and no more death. We should be encouraged when we think about that day, but also we should be excited. I hope it excites you to the core To know that one day Jesus will return. That this thing is headed somewhere. Jesus is coming back for his bride. And the first time he came, he came as a servant. The next time he comes, he's coming to take over. That should excite us as a fellowship. Charles Stanley said, An eager anticipation of the Lord's return keeps us living productively here's what I desire for us I desire for us to one day be able to look back over our lives at lives where we gave, we served we sacrificed for the glory and honor of Jesus and say I'm glad I did I'm thankful that my life was spilled out as a living sacrifice for the sake of the gospel. And here's the opportunity we have today we have a chance to evaluate. You may be here this morning and you're thinking about your life and it's not good. You're evaluating what you're giving your life to, how you're utilizing your time, skills, and resources. And you're saying, you know what? I'm I'm investing my life in the wrong thing. Here's the opportunity you have today. That can change. You can bring those things under the authority of Jesus and leverage them for maximum kingdom impact. This whole month, we're all gonna be challenged about the way we spend our time We spend our skills and we spend our resources. We're going to challenge you this month. But it starts in our heart. It starts with a right heart attitude about what God has entrusted to us and the kingdom opportunity that is before us. I want to close by reading a really clear example of everything we've talked about this morning. It's in Mark Chapter 14. A lot of you will know this story when I start reading it. Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon. While he was eating, a woman came in with a beautiful alabaster jar of expensive perfume made from essence of nard. She broke open the jar and poured the perfume over his head. Some of those at the table were indignant. Why waste such expensive perfume? They asked. It could have been sold for a year's wages and the money given to the poor. So they scolded her harshly. But Jesus replied, leave her alone. Why criticize her for doing such a good thing to me? You will always have the poor among you. And you can help them whenever you want. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. And has anointed my body for burial ahead of time. I tell you the truth. Wherever the good news is preached. Throughout the world. This woman's deed will be remembered and discussed. That's a picture of surrender to lay out something so expensive at Jesus's feet and say, Lord, I just wanna honor you with this. I just wanna bless you with this. It's a picture of legacy. Jesus said, whenever this story is brought up, people are gonna talk about the sacrifice and service of this lady. How was that possible? Well, I believe that's possible because she lived her life dominated by the reality of eternity. What's it going to take for you to get there? Where you're ready and waiting to serve. You're ready and waiting to give. And that becomes the very thing you're known for. Someone who leverages everything in their life for maximum kingdom impact because in your heart what you long for more than anything else is to make a difference for the glory and the honor of jesus i want us to take this month and really process through what the bible says so that at the end of the day at the end of our lives we can look back on sacrifice and service and giving and say i'm glad i did